Let's take our Bibles now and let's go to the book of Philippians. Philippians. We're going to go to the first chapter in Philippians and we're going to continue our study uh, in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, but, but, but that's where we'll end up. But first, let's start in verse number 12. Verse 12, Paul is speaking, writing from prison, and here's what he says, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. What happened to him? Well, he was arrested. His ministry was, his public ministry was curtailed and cut back. But he said it's okay because God used those things to further the gospel. Verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope. That in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul has set the stage in Philippians, writing to these dear believers, telling them that all the bad things that have happened in my life since I've become a Christian, God has used to further the gospel. And you too, believers in Philippi, can have joy through the mind of Christ, not in spite of your circumstances. This is a new thought for the believers. Because of your circumstances. It reframes suffering. It it repurposes the bad things that are happening in their lives to be to being advantages. Now look at he says, look what he says in verse 27. He said, "Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. What how you live your life should look good on the gospel." Is that, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And the sentence continues, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me and now here to be in me. Our outline this morning is found in verse 28, 29, and 30. Verse 28, we see the adversaries of the gospel. Verse 29, we see the aim of suffering. And verse 30, our association, our privileged association with heroes. First of all, verse 28, we see the adversaries of the gospel. Now, he said, I don't want you to be terrified by your adversaries. What's an adversary? An adversary is defined as an individual or a group that actively opposes or threatens you, or it could be something that harms or weakens you. An adversary, an enemy, an antagonist. Uh, We cannot live long as bipeds standing on our two feet, as some people say, standing on our hind legs, 
we will not be able to live long standing until someone stands against us in something. In fact, as we enter into the week of July 4th, remember that our very nation was founded by standing for something. In fact, I want to I want to read dec- part of the Declaration of Independence. I don't want to put you to sleep. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read part of it. Here's what it says: They're they're talking about King George III, and they were not happy with the guy, the things that he was doing. They listed a long they they put a long list of grievances down in the Declaration of Independence. How many have read that? Okay, that's good. How many say, I haven't, but I know I'm an American citizen and I should care enough to read the founding document of our country? Anybody out there? <laughs> Listen, it, it, it's, it's worth reading. It's good literature. You've got to read it. After it they, they talked about this long list and they said, But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, events as a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. Now, I read that because King George had become an adversary to one of his colonies, or to a series of his colonies, the 13 colonies in America. And because they no longer were willing to go with the flow, and said, we are going to stand for what we believe any, any province that's under the nation of England's rule should have. We should share some of the same liberties and have the same privileges as the other parts of Great Britain enjoy. And because we do not, we are no longer going to go with the flow. We are going to stand and say, by all rights, we insist upon this. Now, this was the Declaration of Independence was well past that time. But they recapped it, basically, and said, we've tried. We've tried to go with what George said. We've tried to go with the flow. We've tried to listen to him. Now, I'm not here to argue the, 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 the foundation of all that. I was not in that time frame. And I understand there's varying ways of looking at the founding of our country. I, for one, am glad that they did find, found the country of America. It has been uh, unique in the history of the world. It's been unique. But the point I want to make is that our country itself was founded because someone decided that we're not just going to go along to get along anymore. All right. So what you have here in our passage of scripture is just that sentiment. He said this. He said, Paul said, we're supposed to be the body of Christ, the church, the believers supposed to be striving together for the faith of the gospel, comma, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Why? Anytime you stand up to do something worthwhile, others will attack you. In fact, it is difficult to determine whether you are doing anything worthwhile if no one is attacking you. 
Such as, listen, there are no doctors who just want to go into the medical field to take an already completely satisfied human race and make it even better. Doctors have a job because people are miserable, because they break things in their body, because diseases attack their body. So what's a doctor? He stands and says, no. That's what he's doing. For today, now we fast forward 200 and something years later, whatever it is, 250, I don't know what it is, uh, close to 250. We still have adversaries as a nation. Today, our primary adversaries are China and Russia. And we look, our relations, our relations with those countries are viewed primarily, at the very least, through the lens of competition. We're not buddies. We work together with them in some areas, some areas we don't. Right now, we're standing by proxy against them. Why? You can't do anything worthwhile without having adversaries. Now, no sane man wants adversaries. If you want someone to fight, then you haven't been in a fight. If you're looking for fights... There's something wrong with your head. Hey, listen, Jesus Christ was the Prince of Peace. And and he told us that we're supposed to, to pray that we could live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and sincerity. That's our desire. But I'm here to tell you, you can pray and desire that and still end up with adversaries. Jesus did. The Apostle Paul did. Why? You can't be a man or woman of integrity and not have someone stand against you. Moms, do you have teenage kids? Do you work at a company where people try to get away with stuff? And try to bend the rules? And try to get you to bend the rules? You can't be a person of integrity without someone opposing you in this wicked world. It's very important that we understand this. See, there's, there's a group of, of, of Americans, and, and because it is in America, it blends, it just goes into the American church, and that's it's this idea, I, I don't want to be divisive. You don't have to be divisive. All you have to do is say, thus saith the Lord, and people will divide from you. The question is, when they divide from you, will you stand or will you go with them? All you have to say is, boy, it sure is nice out here today, and someone will divide from you. The question is, will you go along with them and say, well, I see your point. We're living in a day now in which people find it to be the greatest point of of godliness, the greatest indication of Christ-likeness to never argue with anyone about anything. And yet, all you have to do is look at Christ on the cross and say, he must have done something wrong. He missed it. Because if he were a good man, he would not be so irritating to culture that they would crucify him on a cross. John Stuart Mill wrote this concerning war. He said, war is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling which thinks that nothing is worth war is much worse. The person who has nothing for which he is willing to fight 
Nothing which is more important than his own personal safety is a miserable creature and has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. That boy pitched it right across the plate. You said, the worst thing I can think of is it being at war. I can promise you this. If you stand for anything, someone's going to bring the war to you. Christian, you say, I, just, I think we should all get along. How many people in this that you witness to believe what you believe about Jesus Christ? What are you going to do? Change what Jesus Christ, try to mix it, try to, try to just meld in, try to make all the black and white into some kind of a soupy gray so that no one gets upset at you? It's not going to work. And if it does work, it will only be temporarily. You see, the gospel spoken of here is an offense to the heathen. It is, and it's designed to be so. Why? It is saying the, o- the only righteousness that God will accept is the righteousness of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection purchases salvation. Anything that a man does is not good enough. So if you give the gospel saying, God, Jesus just wants to be your friend. I understand why people say, accept Jesus as your personal savior. But I want to remind you that the, the word personal is not in the Bible. The word relationship is not in the Bible. Accepting Jesus Christ into your life sounds a little bit like, yeah, I'll sign up for DirecTV. I don't know. We'll give it a shot. It's adding something in. No, no, no. The cross stands as a roadblock on the way to hell. Everyone says, I will do my own thing. I want my own thing. And if you're going to get saved, if you're going to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what you have to realize. I don't care where you were raised. What church? I don't care what confirmation, what baptism, what code of ethics you adhere to. There's nothing you can do, sir or madam, that can come anywhere close to the, res- to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a free gift. If you try to earn it, you are an enemy of God. You are mocking God and shaking your fist in God's face if you think you can get to heaven any other way than the way he provided, which is Jesus Christ adversary. Now, do you have to say it with a scowl? I don't think so. This scowl is natural. It's just the way I am. I don't intend them. Inside, I'm jumping up and down. I'm so happy. But I have a hard time expressing that to you. The truth is, if you stand for anything, there will be those who oppose you. And, And generally speaking, anything in your life that opposes you living for God is your adversary. You've got to remember that just because you like it doesn't mean that it's your friend. Narcissus, the young man in Greek mythology, fell in love with his reflection in the pool. And while he enjoyed looking at it so much, he was frozen and could not get away from that image. He was staring at his phone, I'm sorry, at the pool And he liked what he looked like so much that he was in bondage to himself. You see, anything that opposes God's rule in your life is your enemy. It's your adversary, generally speaking. That would, I mean, do you think about that? Anything that pushes back against God in your life is your adversary. It is seeking to destroy you. If it could, 
it would completely do away with you. Specifically speaking, these here are enemies of the gospel. You see, if we ever get to the point where we are with one mind, one spirit, striving for the faith of the gospel, you can count on it. We are going to have some adversaries. If you have not experienced any adversaries in your gospel ministry, it is because you are not being clear enough with the gospel and taking enough time to, to insist upon what God says in his word. There's going to be some type of, if that adversary is against you and your mind, if it's against you from someone else, there will be pushback. We're, we're not looking for adversaries. And here's where some people think, oh, Christian life is a battle. I'm a soldier. Let's go, baby. I love fighting. I fight a long time before I ever got saved. I just the way I am. I come up fighting. Now I'm looking for somebody to fight. No, no, no. You're not looking for adversaries. Your testosterone does not equal spirituality. But at the same time, anyone who would shrink from an adversary is not Christ-like. Not Christ-like. We need, we need some people who are bold for the Lord. What is boldness? Boldness is I don't care what you're trying to make me feel like. I'm not changing what I feel about this. I don't care the pressure you try to put me under and try to shame me. I will not change what I believe in this. I will go face to face with you with a smile on my face, with love in my heart, and I ain't changing. That's boldness. It's, hey, by the way, it's not the same as stubbornness. Any Germans out here? Any Scots out here? That your, your racial heritage is not the same as Christ-likeness. But I will say this. If you don't have the ability to stand against what someone else is saying, you need to add that to your arsenal. You need to ask God to develop godly boldness. Listen, Jesus Christ, was he the lowly Galilean? Of course he was. But I ask you this question. Why did they try to kill him for being nice? I'll tell you why they tried to kill him. Because he said he was right and they weren't. My message is not that I'm right and you're wrong. My message is that he is right and you're wrong. Guess what? People don't care whether I'm saying it's him or me. They think it's the same thing. And that is actually, that is actually a compliment. If someone gets mad at you for declaring the word of God, it's a compliment. That means they can't tell a difference between you and the word of God. That's a blessing. And that's what Paul is saying here. Listen to Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, he was a missionary killed in the 1950s by the Aka Indians that he was seeking to reach with the gospel. But he was a great writer. If you ever get a chance to read his journals, uh, anything, he, messages online, uh, hear him preach, he was, a, he was a passionate man. He said this, If we are honest with ourselves, we may find that we are utterly ordinary and commonplace. We profess to know a power the world cannot reckon with. We are all sideliners, coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers, while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. We are often spiritual pacifists, conscientious objectors in this battle to the death with principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. 
Oh, that God would make us dangerous. Christian, let me ask you a question. Do you condemn those in the 1960s who dodged the draft by running to Canada or burned their draft cards and burned the American flag and said, we will not stand for this unjust war? The principles upon which this war in Vietnam are founded are, are, are unjust and wrong. If you would condemn them and not stand for the faith of the gospel in the face of terrifying adversaries, you're a hypocrite. You're accusing God of having an unjust war. If I could be so bold this morning, you might be on the cusp of being a spiritual draft dodger. You're saying to God, I don't have to stand. I don't have to fight. I don't have to be different than the world. I can blend in. I just want to run into another culture where I don't have to stand out and sacrifice. I don't mean to be too hard, and I understand that it's not my generation. I, do, I, I wish not to speak authoritatively so, but it is a question that I have in my mind. How can we be so dogmatic in our patriotism and then think of the kingdom of God that we are called upon to spread and to speak of and to shrink back from that? And to be so opinionated about what's right and wrong when it comes to our nation, and we should be, but to find on the other side of that bread hasn't even been baked at all. It hasn't been tested in the oven of reality. It hasn't been placed into the public sphere where it can be challenged. I fear that sometimes we live on the privileges that we have gained from others who have sacrificed. We coast because somebody else is out there preaching the gospel. We have people who can come into our church fully formed Christians because of the sacrifice of many other people. And we think somehow that because of that, we have a strong church. I go to that big church out on the highway. There are many here who sacrificed to make that dream a reality. I'm grateful for that. If we're not careful, we sneak into the class photo as if we were part of the class. I'm not not trying to be harsh to you. And listen, we all have failures. We all have weaknesses. We, We all have fears in our hearts. But Paul here is reminding us, I was with you in weakness and fear. And he said, I preached Christ and Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was my message. And he said, I want to galvanize you. I want to galvanize you against your adversaries. And hey, listen, if I made you mad this morning, maybe that's good. Maybe get your blood going a little bit. Maybe start thinking a little bit about this. I'm not your judge. I'm here to to tell you that that God has uh, some marching orders for us. He said, nothing terrified by your adversaries. In Philippians 1.28, he shows us here that the adversaries of the gospel are intending to terrify us. They're terrorists. They are people who use unlawful violence and intimidation in the pursuit of political aims. People who use 
unlawful violence and intimidation in pursuit of their own aims. I want you to take your Bibles now. Let's go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And it's wonderful to be able to have a a, a subtext to put under Philippians because this is the city of Philippi. A chief city. One of the crown jewels of Rome. And in, in Acts chapter 16, we saw where Paul, Paul comes over, witnesses to a lady named Lydia, and, and she receives the Lord, opens her heart, the Lord opens her heart, she attends unto those things which are spoken by Paul, and they continued to share the gospel, they went to her house, Enjoyed times of fellowship and so forth. In verse 16, it says, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, they'd been praying with Lydia and others by the riverside peacefully, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. Here is a woman, a young lady, who has this spirit. The same, by the way, it's a spirit of divination. In this age in which we live, with the completed canon of Scripture, with all the books of the Bible written, be careful of someone who has the spirit of prophecy. Be careful of YouTube videos that say so-and-so had this, made this prophecy back whenever. Listen, that spirit of divination, uh, anything God wants you to know, he's given to you in the Word of God. Be careful with this prophecy thing. It's clickbait, by the way. You know this, right? They're trying to get us, and sometimes they get us, don't they? But he said the spirit of divination was there, and she, she was, it was all about the money. Verse number 17, the same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Notice, were we told to follow Paul as Paul followed Christ? We were told that. And yet, here is a young lady that is following Paul and his entourage, and what is she saying? She's saying the truth. They were servants of the Most High God, and they did show people the way of salvation. But watch with Paul here, verse 18. And this did she many days. So everywhere they go, this girl is is walking behind them. These people are servants of the Most... I mean, they're just trying to go to the river and pray. Right? That's all they did. They sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither in Acts chapter 16. They weren't, you know, carrying a PA system with them. They were just talking with these ladies. And, and it worked well. God was using them. Fruit was, was coming. And they go to their house. They're having meals together in fellowship. And then they go back out in the public sphere to pray again. And what happens? This girl starts following them and just saying that over and over and over and over again. Now, what would, what would you do if that were the case? She's not saying the wrong thing. She's following us, which means while she's following us, she's not making any money from, for other people. She's, I mean, she's pretty close. Watch what Paul does. Verse 19, when her masters, I'm sorry, verse 18, this did she many days, but Paul being grieved turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. By the way, I've mentioned that before, but you notice you have a young lady who has a male spirit in her. That should tell you something about the transgender agenda. Uh, the idea that you can change your gender is satanic. 
He, it's the same thing, by the way, that said you could, you, a, a male could be feminized and a, a woman could be masculinized. You say, well, there's a lot of gray area. I don't, maybe you were raised as a tomboy. Maybe you were raised as a mama's boy. I don't know. All I know is this. God made a distinction between male and female, and he intends there to be a distinction between male and female. And, and when you start mixing those things, right, what you end up with is you're being influenced by Satan. That's just the truth of the matter. Uh, but notice verse number 19, when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs, which is, which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. You see, if you just learn to live with the devil, He's not going to cause you any grief. If you just go along to get along, if you just flow, if, if Paul would have just left her alone, she's crazy. Let her say what she wants to say. What's the big deal? Why do we have to always just push back? Listen, all Paul did was saying, you bother me. He was grieved. What grieves you? What grieves you in your world? Does it grieve you when someone hinders your gospel ministry, is there any gospel ministry for someone to hinder? Paul was not sitting here in, in his house drinking coffee and somebody's yelling out from outside through the window. Paul is not also even out on the street preaching at this point. Paul is simply praying with people individually. And even that was too extreme for the devil. You see, what I'm saying here, it's not so much about you and your bravado that causes adversaries. It's simply you following Christ. If you don't have any adversaries, you have to reverse engineer and think, am I really following Christ? Now, here's the beauty of this thing. We as Christians in America, we follow Christ. I read my Bible every day. I pray. And by the way, you should do that. You should pray. I go to church. You should. But guess what? At this point in our culture, nobody has a problem with that. Not yet, anyhow. No one has a problem with you reading your Bible in your, in your home, praying in your home, going to your specified building that you purchased with your own money, doing your thing. That's fine. Live and let live. That's what we as Americans do best, right? The problem is when you step into the public sphere and, and intend to share the love of Jesus Christ through the gospel with other people. That's where the problem comes. Now notice, you, don't, you, you can't use this passage to prove that Paul was being a jerk. You, you can't say that he was being an extreme, uh, crazy guy that just did wild things. He was praying with people. By the way, that's a legitimate ministry from the Bible. Seek to find people with whom you can pray. And that wasn't enough to keep the ire of Satan away. If you have any opinions, you will have adversaries. We, 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 again, I, I emphasize this here because in our culture, intolerance is one of the greatest sins, along with smoking. It's very, very bad. Very bad. Intolerance is very bad. How bad is it? Well, it's so bad that if you have any intolerance, we won't tolerate it. 
right? Everyone has intolerance. In fact, you don't have to exercise tolerance until you disagree with someone. What they're saying is not we want, we want tolerance. What they're saying is we want everyone to think the same way. How's that working in your marriage? I've been married almost 24 years. I still can't get her to think like me. And she still can't get me to think like her. God never intended for us all to think the same thing, but to strive together for a same cause. Churches, we don't need people who all think the same one, follow the same football teams and and hang out and all go together to the same places. I mean, that's fun if you want to do it, but that's not why we have a church. We strive together for the faith of the gospel. Though we may be different as night and day, rich, poor, educated, illiterate, Blue collar, white collar, those distinctions are kept at the door. When we come into the body of Christ, we say we are here for the faith of the gospel. And when we do that, we will have adversaries. Verse number 22 says, and the multitude rose up together against them. Why? Because it's not the multitude that had a problem. It's the agitators that had a problem. The multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes. They publicly shamed them and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison. Now they're isolated from society, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison. Now they're in solitary confinement and made their feet fast in the stocks. These people are dangerous. They need straitjackets. And watch with verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. So he said, and nothing terrified by your adversaries. Paul had adversaries not because he was a mean guy. He had adversaries because he was sharing the gospel. And when those adversaries came, he refused to be terrified. Sometimes we think, all right, you know, my, 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 my wife told me of when she was in college, there was a young zealot in, in Bible college who decided to set fire to an adult bookstore in town. And he got arrested and fined. Why? Because he was an idiot. We, we, hey, and personally, if, I could, if, if there was any way I could get rid of him and destroy that from off the face of the earth, I think it needs to be destroyed. I think he had the right idea but the wrong method. You see, it's, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But if we're not careful, what that, we think that means is we don't wrestle at all. He said we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We are supposed to be wrestling, not standing by judging the wrestling match. We're supposed to be in there grappling. We're supposed to get our hands dirty. We're supposed to get sweaty, get our face up in somebody's armpit. It's disgusting. It's very, very, it's much too close to any humans. And that's what a lot of Christians, they don't want to get close to humans. Why? They're messy. They stink. Not like us, of course. We smell like, you know, Old Spice, coconut rain, whatever it is. You know, or shavings, steel shavings, you know, whatever it is they're selling to the guys now. Sandpaper. (laughs) We smell great, but that world, man, I'm telling you, it's irritatingly weird. I'm not getting close to that. I might, you know what? I was talking to that person and I could tell she had just been smoking. 
horizon. And I think maybe even she was a little tipsy. Listen, if you're going to go out there, you're going to find that there's a lot of junk out in the world. What do we do with that? I'll tell you what we do. We don't allow ourselves to be shamed into being silenced. In nothing terrified by your fellow employees. In nothing terrified by your relatives. And in nothing terrified by your next door neighbors. In nothing terrified. You are not going to, I am not going to allow the, the, the world or the flesh or the devil to mentally intimidate me into being silenced for Jesus Christ. That's what you're saying. Young men hear that and they're like, that's right. And by the way, I'm glad you've at least got some blood flowing in your veins. You ought to get out there and you ought to say something that irritates somebody just to try it out for once. Eventually, that, that will even out until you have wisdom and you can speak grace with salt. But, but a lot of Christians, they look back at their early, early days of their Christianity and they say, yeah, I was so overzealous back then. I was over the top. And guess what I am now? I'm lukewarm. Now, I've finally reached a place where I can feel like a Christian and I never even have to talk about Jesus at all. It's awesome. It's a great gig if you can get it. That's not God's design. He said, and nothing terrified by your adversaries. Paul and Silas at midnight, having been stripped naked and beaten and put in solitary confinement for what? For praying with a lady and then turning around and saying, hey, listen, sweetheart, pipe down. After she followed them many days, that's what they get. But guess what? Sitting there naked and bleeding in the solitary confinement cell with their feet fast in the stocks, they started singing. Why? Because they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid. I don't know about you. I, I look at, I look at uh, martyrs' stories, and, and, and I, I, I read them, and I think, how in the world? I could never do it. I can tell you how they do it. They're not terrified. Perfect love casteth out fear. They have so much love for God that they actually can use persecution against themselves and people try to shame them and treat them like they're stupid and illiterate and mock them and say, <laughs> okay, okay, you believe that, okay. If you let that stop you, you are being controlled by your fear. You are terrified by your adversary. He said, don't, don't be terrified. Now let's go to verse 29. Verse 29 in verse, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Forgive me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. We'll come back to Acts chapter 16. But let's look at verse 29. We saw first the adversaries of the gospel. Secondly, the aim of suffering. Here it is. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. As Americans, specifically Midwesterners, we sometimes think of suffering as a temporary setback to our peaceful existence. It is, it's an unwelcome interruption to our dream life. It, it's a detour. It's construction on the way to Disney World. It, it's, you can't do anything about it. It just happens. happens to everybody. But won't, before long, we're going to get back on track. But there is no way to avoid suffering in this life. In fact, human suffering is a part of being human. It's a part of mortal existence. Let me ask you a question. Who experiences these more often? Believers or unsaved? 
car wrecks, uh, cancer, um, difficulty at work, getting let go from a job, uh, problems in marriage. Uh, how about this? Uh, uh, difficulty raising your children. Who experiences those most? Sometimes we sell the Christian life as if you sign on to Jesus and all your problems are over. And it's just the facts, the, the statistics do not bear that out. You don't, you're not averse or immune from getting cancer because you're a believer. Am I right? So here's the thing. Sometimes we think, well, God's, God's there to help me through my cancer. And he certainly is. But, 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 but everybody gets cancer. Why? Because everybody lives in this same cursed world. We're all going to physically die one day. We all have these problems. But he says here, it is given to you in the behalf of Christ. What is that? This particular suffering is a gift from God. There are individuals for whom suffering is a welcome, welcome gift. Now, I didn't say that for some people they have the gift of suffering. No, for some people, suffering is a welcome gift. I'll give you an example. Recruits for the special forces. They don't like suffering, but they welcome it. In fact, if you don't welcome it and you try to fight it, you won't make it through the training. But here's these guys and these girls, and they go in and they know that they are signing up for being miserable for a great length of time. I've talked with my brother-in-law, Rick, who was in the, the Green Beret Division of Special Forces in the Army. And he, he would talk about how he was so miserable, he went through Sears school, POW training, evasion, escape, and so forth. And he talked about how he was on the road, he was doing land nav, and he was by himself, and uh, he hadn't eaten for days and days and days, and how he found a little packet of ketchup. And he was so happy to have that packet of ketchup because he was living off of whatever he could find. Now, that was probably the most miserable time, one of the most miserable times in his life, if not live combat. And everyone that was making his life miserable was doing it on purpose for his good. So he received it as a gift. He didn't complain. In fact, complaining would have sabotaged his training. It would, have, it would have made it impossible for him to mentally be strong enough to complete the training. I have another friend. I've told this story before. I think it fits here. A friend who went to try out for, uh, he was in the Navy, and he went to, to go to SEALs training. And uh, SEAL training. He was there in, in BUDS. He was there for the Hell Week. And it mentally started to get to him. He was physically injured. They took him to the hospital. He was in uh, the hospital bed, warm and fed. And all he could think about was that his fellow, his buddies were out there and they were getting wet and sandy down in Coronado Beach. And all he could think about was, I need to be there. I should be there. I should not be here. It's not right for me to be here. It's not fair for me to be here. And he started messing with his mind. When he was well enough to go return, that was stuck in his mind and he could not continue. Because he started feeling that he was holding his buddies back. 
And his buddies were, were, were doing their best, but he was thinking, I left him here. I shouldn't have left him. I should never have gone. It's not fair. They've had to suffer without me and all this. And he's, mentally, he's not able to continue the training. It got to the point where the, the, the instructors knew that this was a crack in the dam, and they started exploiting it. And why did they exploit it? Not because they wanted him to quit, because they wanted him to finish, but they had to push him to his limits. He had signed up to be pushed to his limits further than he wanted to go. But the instructors were successful in changing the goal from completing the training to ringing the bell, which signaled, I'm done. They successfully changed it. In fact, they started saying to him, hey, you're not man enough to ring that bell. You know you want to, but I don't think you can. This is what the goal became. And finally, what happened is he said, I got so frustrated and mad and so confused in my mind, I went over and I grabbed a hold of that rope and I rang it as hard as I can I could and I said, there, what do you think of that? And as soon as I rang that bell, I knew what I had done. That's the kind of mental warfare that people on purpose sign up for. You and I sometimes we think the goal is to just chill 24-7. Just chill. Sit back, watch TV, drink iced tea. That's all I want to do. Guys, there are people, and I'm glad for them, that are seeking discomfort and suffering. They see it as a gift because they want to grow. They want to change. Now listen, I told a story about the, the, about the special forces, and a lot of the men, I'm sure, resonate. But ladies, you don't get out of this easier. They don't get out of this easy either. And here's why. We talk about sometimes how men are more you know, risky and bold and, and they don't mind suffering. I think maybe that, that we're, we're forgetting about a little thing called childbirth. I don't know any man who would say, I'll sign up for that. No way in the world. Supposedly, they're, they're, they're less risky, they're less daring, they're more afraid of... No, a woman is not necessarily risk-averse. She just takes different risks. She goes into a very vulnerable place physically in order to bring forth a child. The Bible says, a woman when she is in travail hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. She knows what's coming, so she willingly goes through the worst pain of her life. And when she gets to that point where she gets what she wants, she forgets about the pain. Now, I, I, I'm, I, I don't know personally. I've talked with my wife about it. I'll tell you this. I've never heard a woman say that because of the pain of childbirth, it just wasn't worth it to have kids. And if a woman were to say that, I think all the ladies in here would be highly suspect of that woman's character. They would look at her and say, grow up, sweetheart. Am I right, ladies? How is that possible that a woman can willingly welcome pain? The worst pain of their lives. Hey, and ladies will tell you, it's not just the physical, it's the mental it's the spiritual, the emotional battles that you fight, the relational battles that you fight as a result of everything changing. Why? Is it even worth it? 
That's not why I got married. That's not why I got, I got a husband. I just wanted to just live my life and have fun. What would we say about a woman like that? We'd say she is immature. Because there is a maturity. And by the way, this is not even to mention some of the ladies who would love to have that pain and can't. Right? What, what are we saying? There are individuals who on purpose choose pain for a greater aim, for a higher purpose. Notice here, he said in verse number 29, he said, we are suffering for his sake. Suffering for his sake. Isn't that interesting? Not for our sake. It is, be, it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. It is a gift from God. If you choose to live for Jesus, you will not be able to avoid suffering. If you want everyone to accept you as cool and as, as normal and as whatever the peer is in your group, you cannot do that if you're going to follow Jesus Christ. It'll bring a whole new kind of suffering. It'll bring persecution that comes from a wicked world that wants you to abandon your Christian living, to conform yourself again to the ways of the world. All they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want that to be true. I don't want to suffer persecution. So sometimes it's like, maybe I'm not ready to live godly. The challenge for you this morning, and this is what I'm, I'm talking to you about, and I realize that, 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 that it's been a lot of reading and so forth, but the challenge is for you to reframe suffering and run towards it. Embrace it. Hey, saddle up. Stop trying to get away from it. Run towards it. It's going to happen. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Bring it on. I'm not saying that you like pain for pain's sake. You're going to suffer anyhow, right? If you're a backslidden Christian and you're out living in the world, do you have any kind of spiritual suffering? I would submit to you that you do. You have underneath all of your life, you have this dull roar of knowing that you're not where God wants you to be. You're not doing what's right. You are, you, you, God is not happy with you. The Holy Spirit is grieved with you. You live with that on a regular basis. If you're, if you're not doing what God wants you to do, you're not pain-free. Everybody has cancer anyhow, has problems with their pipes leaking. Everybody has problems at work, problems in their family. Everyone does, saved or unsaved. You're not being persecuted because you have a problem with your car. It happens to everybody. But I will tell you this, if you sign up to serve God, there will be additional persecution. And that persecution is a gift from God. It is given to you on the behalf of Christ. You want to be Christ-like? Well, guess what? Christ suffered. Philippians chapter 1, verse 28 says this, which is to them an evident token of perdition. The, the people are terrifying you because of the gospel, and they take it as an evident token of perdition. They say it's a sign, a symbol of the fact that you are going to be utterly destroyed. For instance, the civil authorities in Philippi, what do they think of Paul? They thought he was the bad guy and they locked him up. But God used that affliction to show the people at Philippi that Paul was actually the good guy. You remember, Shimei screamed at David. He accused him of being a murderer who was under the righteous judgment of God. As David is being afflicted, he's being sent out of his own kingdom by his son, 
Shimei is screaming at him and calling him a bloody man and saying, God took you out of the kingship. He thought David was defeated. Job's wife thought that her husband was under the curse of God, and she said so. Curse God and die. She was wrong because God blessed the latter end of Job. The disciples, they looked at the man that was born blind, and they said, who did send this man or his parents that he was born blind? The Lord said, neither one. He's blind because I'm going to show, this is a precursor to a greater miracle just on the other side of this thing. Jesus Christ himself was, and he was on the cross. People wagged their tongues at him. Isaiah said, we did esteem him smitten, stricken of God, and afflicted. Jesus Christ was thought of as being under the judgment of God for his sins. He was under the judgment of God, but not for his sins, for our sins. But people walking by said, yeah, that's what happens when you fight against God. You ever feel that way? You try to give the gospel out, and people say, you're an idiot. Why are you so, I mean, okay, you're, we get it, we get it. You have your thing, I have my thing. And they make you feel like you're, you're, you're unintellectual or, or that you are um, a caveman, that you don't get what's going on, you believe this thing. And they're trying to terrify you, intimidate you into silence. And they take the fact that you're the only one in your, in your workplace that believes that. You're the only one in your family. You're the only one in your community. You know why? Because it's not true. Because you don't really know what you're talking about. It's all made up. They take it as an evident token of perdition. The truth of the matter is, when affliction comes, praise the Lord. It spreads. That joy is attractive. Because someone comes to Jesus, not because you're having a bad time. Everybody has a bad time. But someone comes to Jesus because you have joy and rejoicing in that bad time, and they can't keep your joy down. The Philippians knew that because that's how they came to Christ. That's how Paul could tell them. He said it is an evident token of salvation. Your suffering looks like defeat, but it's actually victory. Look back in Acts chapter 16, verse 29. Acts 16, 29. We're coming in here on the last point. 1629. Notice this is after the imprisonment and the beating, the feet in the stocks, and then an earthquake. Verse 29. Then he called for a light. This is that same jailer that thrust him into the inner prison. He called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It was an evident token of salvation that Paul was the only one. Paul and Silas were condemned as being outliers, as being crazy lunatics. Why? You're the only ones that believe this. Everybody else, we already know what we believe, and you guys are the extremists. God had a way of turning that upside down with an earthquake, and now it was an evident token of salvation. Everybody else would have left if it hadn't been for Paul, but because of Paul, everyone stayed, and the jailer himself said, what must I do to be saved? What a phenomenal story. It's, it's amazing. That's what God intends to do with you. If you will stand faithfully against the adversaries of the gospel, God intends to turn the thing on its head. You say, it'll never happen. Those people are hard. Those people, that's what they said about the apostle Paul before he was the apostle Paul. 
Time and time and time again, God takes the interrogator, God takes the antagonist, and turns him around to be the main character in his story. I don't know who you're working with in your life, but I'm telling you, if you give up and you back off and say, God couldn't do it, you're a draft dodger. Here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to win that person to Christ. I'm saying your job, my job, is to stand against this wicked culture and proclaim the love of Jesus Christ through the gospel and let them try to terrify us, but we won't. We stand. We stand. And we sing even when we are imprisoned. And what happens? God gets involved. That's what we want to see. You see, we pray and we fast and we ask God and then we get discouraged and we say, I'm not going to pray for them anymore. It's not going to happen. Some people are just hard. No, it's not your war to fight. It's not my war to fight. It's his. And I'm going to stand with him even though there are adversaries. Notice, if you would, lastly, I want to show you a couple verses in 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 3. Right before, lastly, forgive me. I treasure that word as well when I hear it. Just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3. I want want you to see this because this is so connected with the Christian life. For the believer... Even our suffering, 1 Peter 3, even our suffering benefits the cause of the gospel. Verse 14, but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? That's not a period. It's a comma. You see, the suffering is not for suffering's sake. Here's the purpose, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. David Murrow said, in today's church, the gospel is no longer about saving the world against impossible odds. It's about finding a happy relationship with a wonderful man. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. What is the benefits of suffering? 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. The devil's out there. What am I supposed to do? Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect establish, strengthen, settle you. These are the benefits of suffering that God has for you. Stop running from it. Run towards it. You see, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus Christ himself, for even here and to where you call, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. 
Christians, Americans, listen. God's not trying to get you away from suffering. He's trying to give you joy in the midst of inevitable suffering that comes when you follow Christ. Why? Because he wants to bring many sons into glory. Because he wants to strengthen and establish and settle you. You are a more mature, accomplished woman after you have completed the the rigmarole, the rigor of childbirth. You're a deeper person as a result. Finishing basic training, finishing special forces training makes you a deeper, more well-rounded man or woman when you complete that. God wants to strengthen you and establish you and settle you through suffering. And not just suffering. All of us have suffering. Specifically suffering connected with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly this morning, verse 30 in Philippians 1. Thank you for bearing with me. The suffering here that Paul speaks of puts us in good company. He said, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You guys remember at Philippi, you were watching when they stripped me naked and beat me. And you were outside the prison walls yelling in saying, hey, Paul, we're out here. We love you. You remember when I was imprisoned unlawfully. You saw that conflict and now you have it too. This suffering puts us in the company of heroes. The songwriter said, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. And the songwriter came along many years after and added a little refrain. And when the battle's over, we shall wear a crown. If you know anything about Major Dick Winters of Easy Company, his company of Soldiers that landed at Normandy and went through battle after battle, including the Battle of the Bulge, and eventually were able to capture Hitler's fortress itself. When you go back through and movies have been made and books have been written, spinoffs, even even actors in movies have been greatly affected by the story. One of the things he said was this, looking back over his time with those men in, in battle. He said, I cherish the memories of a question my grandson asked me the other day when he said, Grandpa, were you a hero in the war? Grandpa said, no. But I served in a company of heroes. Do you want to serve in a company of heroes? As far as the Lord's concerned, that company of heroes is those who are willing to proclaim the gospel of Christ, to unify together with one mind and one spirit, and in nothing be terrified by their adversaries. 
to be able to say, it has been given to me in the behalf of Christ to suffer. I'm not trying to get to my white picket fence house so I can get away from all the stuff. Thank God if I have it, but that's my staging ground. Thank God for what he's given me. They're all tools and blessings from God so that I can help fast forward the gospel of Christ in this wicked culture. Everything God has given me is to become the gospel of Christ, to look good on the gospel. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we, as humans, shrink from suffering. Suffering is not something we desire to have. But truth is, we all suffer. As humans, Lord, we suffer in general. Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. But Lord, I pray that you would help each one here that's a believer. I pray that we would receive suffering in the gospel as a gift. Lord, perhaps for some of us, we can't even imagine what that means. Lord, would you shake us awake and be patient with us. Help us to understand. Help us as we endeavor to follow Christ, knowing that if we do so, we will be called to suffer. Help us to do so with joy, realizing the privileged position of training that we have been given. Help us to bring honor and glory to you. Would you stand with us this morning and we will have a hymn of invitation.